out of the park for Valentine's Day? A few of you. I failed this Valentine's Day miserably. Uh, well, I, I don't know if I failed because failed implies that you tried, and I'm not sure I tried that hard, so I'm not sure it was a fail. Uh, my, my wife came to pick up my granddaughter from Mother's Day Out today, and I gave her this little bitty package of M&Ms, and I said, got this for you for Valentine's Day. She kind of looked at me and goes, really? I said, yeah, I got it out of the pantry when I left the house. And I said, I didn't get you anything. She said, well, then we're even. So, and she didn't give me anything, so it was a good Valentine's Day for us. But all this talk about Valentine's, and uh, I've got to drag us into the minor prophets with all the gloom, doom, and destruction. So I don't know how that's going to work on Valentine's Day, but we'll see. Do you realize three years ago we started going through the Old Testament? We started in Genesis 1-1 about three years or so. This is how much we've done, okay? We have done this much of the Old Testament. Uh, looks like a, not much left, but, but there is. Um, so we only have a few books of the Old Testament left. Just uh, We're going we're gonna to hit a couple of them tonight. Two or three more left. Should be done by the end of the year. Should be. So, so tonight... Here's where we're going tonight. Well, let me back up. I'll do a quick rehab of last night. Let me see. Hmm. <laughs> Hold on. Nope, ain't got it. Well, I guess we're done. Good night. No, <laughs> We'll figure it out. Last night, we talked about the, the Book of Micah. What do, you, do you remember the, the graphic? Do you remember the cartoon for the Book of Micah? Ah, there it is. This is the Book of Micah. There's a mic that's speaking, and that gives you the clue that it's the Book of Micah. There's a sun on trial. It's the day of judgment. That's what the Book of Micah is about, is the day of judgment. Let me see if it works now. Ah, it works now, yay. Or does it? Hang on. Yeah, it does work. This Valentine's Day has messed me up, I'm telling you. Uh, so Micah, we said that the word Micah meant who is like the Lord. That's his name. We'll hit this real quickly. He was probably a poor farmer. He was 20 miles or so south in Jerusalem in the rural area. He was a contemporary of these prophets. But he was unique in the sense that he prophesied to both northern and southern kingdoms. Usually a prophet just prophesied to one or the other. He prophesied to both. We had this outline. Are you doing that or am I doing that? I'm doing that. Yes, thank you. I just couldn't figure out if we were punching at the same time or not. Uh, the outline was this. First three chapters was about retribution. The second, cha uh, second portion was the second two chapters, four, five, through restoration. Repentance was in six through seven. I'm trying to rush through these because we've got a lot of ground to cover this evening. Here are the takeaways really quickly. Though it may look like the guilty are getting away with it, God will never turn a blind eye to corruption. He will always reveal it and address it when his time is right, not when our time is right. Despite a world that's doing what it wants, God will restore his place, and God will restore his people, and he will do so through his son. 
God's requirement are not that, requirements are not that complicated. One, we're to treat people with fairness and loving kindness. And two, we're to live a life of humility before God. A life of humility before God. The pursuit of self-satisfaction results in a life of gnawing dissatisfaction. That's just the way it is. The more you try to take care of yourself to the detriment of everybody else, the less you'll be satisfied. And then often our problem with God is our perception of God. When we see God clearly, we'll see everything else clearly. That's takeaways from last week. If you weren't here last week, you can go online, you can listen to it, kind of piece all that together. But tonight, we're going to the next book. So the book after, Nahum, or after Micah is Nahum. Nahum. Let me explain this graphic for you. Uh, this wall is getting broken down. Now, the wall is in the shape of the letters Nahum. So it tells you it's the book of Nahum. The wall's getting broken down by this flood. And, and that's kind of the key word for the book of Nahum. It's this flood. And, and what the Nah book of Nahum is about is it's about the city of Nineveh and the nation of Assyria getting destroyed by an opposing force that comes in like a flood. Comes in like a flood. So that's what that is about. Uh, let me give you an overview. Now, the book of Nahum is, uh, is a poem, actually. It's a poem about God's vengeance on the capital city of Nineveh. But it's really also about the whole nation of Assyria. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And so that's what this is about. Let me give you some background. Here's some overview. Prior to Nahum's prophecy, the nation of Assyria had overthrown and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, so when Nahum writes, Israel has already been conquered, destroyed, and disseminated by the Assyrians. That's already happened. One of the big things in Israel's history. Uh, and this, and they were destroyed by the Babylonians. Okay, so now it wasn't bad enough that Assyria was setting on the border of Israel and, uh, and Judah and, and that they were so vile and wicked. But shortly after they have taken down Israel, then eventually Babylonians take down the Assyrians, okay? So, so this, is the, this is the political, geographical things that are going on in the time. So, so now their sights are set on Judah, okay? Judah's feeling threatened. They feel Babylon breathing down their neck. You know, Assyria has, has taken over, and, and they know that Assyria is breathing down their neck. Then all of a sudden, Babylon starts to put its moves on Assyria, which is even just as bad for, for Judah. And so there's a lot of unrest in the time of Nahum's book. Uh, Nahum prophesies of the destruction of Assyria. You know, they had not been destroyed yet. But he prophesies on that. And, and it comes so true. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But it comes very much true. Uh, what do you remember about the nation of Assyria? We'll do this overview. What do you remember about the nation of Assyria? They were very cruel. They were torturously cruel. I mean, we talked about this before where they would bury their enemies up to their neck and then stake them out so that they would go mad before they would uh, actually die. 
that they would uh, drive stakes through their tongues. I mean, they were just viciously cruel. And what I've already said, they are the ones who overthrow Israel. So your worst enemy overthrows Israel. What do you remember about the city of Nineveh? Because that's what we're talking about tonight is the destruction of Nineveh. What do you remember about that? Very wicked. Yeah, yeah, because they they're part of Assyria. They're the capital city of Assyria, so they are extremely wicked. Oh, I do that all the time. Jonah, right, right. God sends Jonah to Nineveh. Jonah runs away. God captures him. The fish pukes him up on the, on the sand. And he goes to Nineveh and, and preaches that in 40 days, God's going to destroy them. And they repent. Okay, so, so Nineveh actually repented. But by the time you get to the book of Nahum, which is about 150 years later, roughly, they have slid back to the way they used to be. You know, so, so they repented. God spared them. But 150 years later, it's just as bad as it always was. And, uh, and so God sends Nahum to prophesy to them. Now, here's the difference between Jonah's prophecy to Nineveh and Nahum's prophecy to Nineveh. Jonah prophesied to them so that they could turn and be saved. Nahum said, there's no hope. You're going to go down. Nahum's prophecy was not so that they could turn. Nahum's prophecy said, hey, it's already a done deal. It's going to happen. And you can't change it. It's a really big difference between the two of them. So then, and it does happen. Babylon begins a siege on Nineveh and on Assyria around 633. And then around 612 B.C., they finally are destroyed. And Nineveh is destroyed so badly that their ruins had, were only discovered not too long ago. I mean, when God says, I'm going to wipe you out and you'll never come back, it's exactly what happened. They were completely, utterly destroyed. And it's only been recently when archaeologists has, has discovered Nineveh. So, this is kind of the background to it. Interesting fact, when Babylonians came in to take over Nineveh, the emperor, rather than surrender to the Babylonians, shuts himself up in the palace and sets it on fire and burns the palace and himself to the ground. Which sounds maybe kind of noble, other than the fact that he gathered up all his wives and took them with him. Burnt them all to a crisp when the Babylonians came in. And, and the interesting thing is the way the Babylonians came in was there was a big flood of the Tigris River. And, and it washed away part of the wall. And then when the wall got washed away, then the Babylonians came in like a flood. And you'll hear some of the descriptions of that even before the fact here. So now this makes, this makes that make more sense, doesn't it? The river floods away part of the wall. The Babylonians who have been camping out and sieging them come on in, and it, it's all over. So this is the context before and after the book of Nahum. So let me give you an outline. Two-part outline. 
The first part is this. The destruction of Nineveh is decreed. That's in chapter 1. It's just three chapters of this book. And then in the second part is the destruction of Nineveh is described. It's really described in graphic detail in the last two chapters, chapters 2 or 3. So let's do this. Let's talk about the destruction of Nineveh decreed. Go to chapter 1 of Nahum. Chapter 1 of Nahum. Nahum starts by declaring the might and the power and the greatness of God. That's where he starts. You know, a lot of us, if we're going to talk about something, we go right to the point. Nahum doesn't do that. He starts with God and works his way into the destruction. So look at uh, chapter 1. Look at verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Now, we don't know anything about Nahum other than his name. His name is Nahum. It means comforter. Uh, if you think of the New Testament, when Jesus went to Capernaum, that word means the valley of Nahum or the valley of the comforter. And uh, so that's all we know about Nahum. And we know we don't even know where Elkosh is. It's consumed. It was probably up in the Galilee area somewhere, but we don't know that. And verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. Hear the graphic language? And the earth heaves before him, and the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of his, the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This is what God's going to do, Nahum says, to Nineveh. This is what he's prophesying to them. Uh, now, what kind of picture of God do you get in this passage? Powerful. Hmm? Powerful. Powerful? I mean, it's not quite the passage you want to read to your kids before they go to bed, right? <laughs> you know, because it starts off pretty strong. It starts off, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. It's a really strong statement about God. Does that bother you? Bothers me a little bit. I mean, it really is. It's kind of hard. How do you reconcile that with what we read in Micah last week where it says, who is, like, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquities and passing over transgressions? And he does not retain his anger forever. He delights in steadfast love. He has compassion. And then just a few verses later in the next book, you hear this angry, wrathful God. And then how do you reconcile that with the New Testament where we're told in 1 John that God is love? What do you do with those? Well, that's really a question I'm asking you. <laughs> you thought that was rhetorical, didn't you? No, I'm serious about it. What do you do with that? 
Because this is a question that people outside of here, maybe some of your friends, they wrestle with. I thought God was supposed to be a God of love, so why this? If God is a God of love, how can he be so mean and so wrathful? You kind of have to deal with that. Doesn't like sin. He didn't say anything about sinners. He said sin. Right. He's got to get your attention. Did you? Me too. I don't think any time I spanked my children, I ever told them it was going to hurt them wor- me worse than them. Yeah, I didn't want to lie to them. It was not going to hurt me worse than them. It was going to hurt them. So, uh, but you're right. I mean, if you love someone enough, you will not let them do whatever they want to. Because if you do, that's not love, that's apathy. You know, if you have somebody you say, I love you, do whatever you want. Well, then you really don't care. So somewhere or another, we have to, find, we have to realize that God is, is complete. He's holistic. He, he has both this side where he's merciful and this side where he's wrathful. Now, if you, if you were listening carefully when we read this passage, it says the Lord is good. Right in the middle, tucked in the middle of this passage, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows who takes refuge in him. There's the key. There's the key. We'll talk about this some more in a minute, but there is balance even in that passage. All right? So, look at... uh, Look at verse 14 of that chapter. Chapter 1 of Nahum. The Lord has given a commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. It's talking about Nineveh and and the nation of Assyria. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal images. I will make your grave for you are vile. So he's really telling them what he's going to do and why he's going to do that. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. That seems odd to say on the heels of that other verse, doesn't it? Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So how do you go from, because we've used this verse a lot, uh, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. And so it sounds like it's someone bringing the gospel. Someone bringing, uh, you know, the word of Christ. Someone, someone being peaceful like a lamb and bringing good news. But that's not the context for where it comes from. It's speaking to two different people. It's speaking to two different people. But how can God be this God who is going to make... Uh, who is going to destroy them, basically. I shall, your name shall not be perpetuated. I'll cut off the house of your gods, et cetera, et cetera. But yet still be someone who brings good news. Well, he's talking to Nineveh. Ah. Those who have rebelled against him completely. And then in verse uh, 15, he's talking to Judah, his people. Right. So this person who brings good news is bringing the good news that the wicked shall pay for their wickedness. That's the good news. The good news is this, this nation that is set on your border and, 
and made your life so miserable, I'm going to deal with that. That's the good news. Now, it doesn't last very long when we get into the next book, you'll see, but, but that's the good news. Okay, so that is the destruction of Nineveh decreed. So let's go to the destruction described. Look at chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Here is the description of what's going to happen to Nineveh. It's very graphic. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots, uh, excuse me, I skipped one. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. Okay, so you see these flashing metals on, on the chariot wheels. And, and, and you, you, you see the blood red on the soldiers. Verse 4, the chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the square. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers and they stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. So now they're starting. Not only have they broke through that portion where the, the river broke down the wall. Not only are they pouring in that way, but now they're starting to pour up in over the wall. And so he, he begins to go on and said, the river gates are open. The palace melts away. Remember, it was burning. So the palace melts away. Uh, its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all the precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt, knees tremble. Anguish is all in, in all loins. All faces grow pale. And then it goes on to give a description about lions carrying their prey into the den and ripping it to shreds. And then verse 13, Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions, and you shall cut off, I shall cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall be heard no more. Now jump over to chapter 3, look at verse 2. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, the galloping of the horses, and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, flashing swords, and glittering spears. Hear the staccato in the speech? Glittering spears, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And here's why. For all the countless whorings of the prostitutes, graceful and of deadly charms, who betray the nations with their whoring and the people with their charms. So he describes this. He goes on and says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you shall shrink away and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall we seek comforters for you? That is a graphic description of what's going to happen. And, no, and remember, this has not happened yet. This is a prophecy. This is what's going to happen. And, and it does. It does. It, it does in spades. The verse reads like a blow-by-blow blow of a battle that hadn't taken place yet. And then the final epitaph you see in the very last verse of the book. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. 
For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Here's what he says. In the end, people are going to cheer because you're dead. Because you were so evil, they're going to cheer because you were dead. Here's the nation that wiped out Israel. Here was the greatest superpower in the world. And Nahum is saying, in a very short period of time, you're going to be completely overrun by the Babylonians. And everybody's going to stand over your grave and cheer because you're dead. How would you like that spoken over your casket? You know, that's, this, this is a tough, tough book. But there's some takeaways in it that are really, really important too. So let me show you these takeaways. Here's one takeaway. God is a God of love. Whoops, jumped one. I got too quick. God is a God of love and consequences. Love for those who respond to him and consequences for those who don't. That's an important thing for us to remember. We love our children. Like you were saying, we love our children and yet we discipline our children. We love our children, but yet we let them suffer the consequences of their actions. And, and to be honest with you, if you're a parent that tries to spare your kids from all the consequences, you're not doing them any favors. You really aren't. They need to feel those. We need to feel those. So God is a God of both love and consequences. Love for those who respond to him and consequences who don't. Second takeaway. God is slow to anger but sure to right wrongs. He's slow to anger, but he will most certainly right the wrongs. You're going to see this in the next book we study too. So any questions? I know we've skimmed through this pretty quickly, but any questions in the book of Nahum? Yes? Yes, you're right. The, the Assyrians were so vile and so evil that God sent Jonah to the capital city of Nineveh to preach this one message to them. Forty days and Nineveh's going to be destroyed. And the king of Nineveh and all the people, and if you remember all the animals, the whole place just turned and repented in sackcloth and ashes, and God spared them. Well, Nahum is about 150 years later. And and. As you know, it's really easy to just drift off course. And they just went back to the way they used to be. And just, you know, the heat was off. You know, do you ever discipline your kids and they act really nice until they know the heat's off and then they just kind of go back the way, it's kind of the way Nineveh was. And so, yeah, they just went back to what was natural to them. And which makes their sin even worse because if God spares you from total destruction, that should count for something. But it didn't in the long run. Again, 150 years later, two generations later, let's say. Other questions? You don't want to be around when God what? Does the same thing again? Yes. Yes. Uh, I don't think any of us want to be around when God repeats this performance. No. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> you know, I think we have to be really careful, though, because I, I believe God gets angry with sin, and I believe God gets angry with people who are sinful and hurt people. Um, but a lot of times what we chalk up to God being angry is really us just suffering the consequences of our own actions. Our sin will bring destruction upon us. It really will. I'm not saying that God won't foster that to get our attention. Remember we said here a while back in one of our studies that when, when God brings the hammer down, so to speak, he doesn't do that to get back at you. He does that to get you back. You know, so his purpose is always redemptive. But that's going to depend upon us. And, and those that listen and respond, he responds to. And those that don't, then he winds up letting them suffer the consequences of their own actions. You know? And, and a lot of times when you and I sin, the reason God's preaching at us to not do this is because he knows if we don't, if we do, it's going to hurt us. You know? The little kid that wants to reach up and touch the stove. Don't do that because it will hurt you. Well, is, are, are, as you, are you as a parent just being a, some kind of a killjoy? Taking away all their fun? No, you're trying to prevent them from getting hurt. So when God sets these kind of restrictions up, he's not trying to kill our fun. He's trying to keep us from getting hurt and consequently have a life that's better. And so if we ignore those consequences and reach up and touch the stove, we're going to get hurt. I mean, that in and of itself, that's not God zapping us, that's us ignoring and, and doing what's going to get us hurt. That happens a lot. And then we blame God. Well, God punished me for doing that. Well, he just kind of lets you take the consequences he was trying to keep you from having. You know? Uh, you ever had a child where, you know, they just wouldn't listen, they wouldn't listen, you finally said, okay, you're on your own. You knew what was going to happen. You knew they were going to crash and burn, but you couldn't get through to him any other way, so you just had to let the crash and burn happen? This is what God does. If you tell God, I want you to leave me alone, he probably will to your detriment. And so Nineveh slid back in two generations, which is not hard to see. All right, we got to get on. We got we to cover one more book tonight. One more book. And this book is going to make some sense. This, this book is actually going to help you make sense out of the other book. And the book is this, Habakkuk. You know it's Habakkuk because this guy's carrying a ha backpack, right? So it's as close as I can get to Habakkuk. Habakkuk. And he's standing on this watchtower. And that comes from a phrase kind of in the middle of the book about uh, Habakkuk. It says, I'm, you know, I'm basically going to stand here on this watchtower and see what happens. I love the book of Habakkuk. Uh, I love this book uh, because it feels very natural to me. We don't know anything about Habakkuk. We really don't. Let's do some context. We don't know anything about him uh, except his name. His name means one who embraces. But we don't know anything about him. He prophesied a few years before the fall of Jerusalem. Assyria has already taken... Uh, Assyria has already taken the nation of Israel, and Babylon has already come in and taken Assyria. Okay, so now Babylon is on the doorstep of Judah. Before, it was Assyria on the doorstep of Judah. All right? 
and it's like six of one, half a dozen of the other. They're both just as ruthless, and they're both just as mean. But now Babylon is setting on their doorstep. Okay, so he prophesies a few years before Jerusalem is destroyed by Babylon. And he wrote this prophecy at a time when, when the balance of power was shifting. You know, it, it's shifting from Assyria to Babylon. One superpower is beginning to shift, the other superpower is in. And, and he also writes this prophecy at a time when the nation of Judah was, in, was just corrupt. They were corrupt, they were lying, they were misusing, they were just bad. And so there's all this upheaval and unrest outside Judah, all this upheaval and unrest in Judah. And so he cries out to God, Habakkuk cries out to God and basically says, why don't you do something about what's happening in our nation? Ever said that while you're watching the news? Why don't you do something about this? I mean, this is your nation of Judah, and, and they're corrupt, and they're vile. And God, why don't you do something about this? And God answers. Habakkuk doesn't really like the answer he gets, but God answers. So here's an outline. Okay. Habakkuk complains to God. He, he, he asks God questions, but he's complaining to God. And God responds. And then Habakkuk complains again, and then God responds. I think I left one out of there. God responds to the second complaint. I did leave one out. And then Habakkuk offers up this prayer of praise. All right? It doesn't break out quite as neat and easy as, as Nahum did. But here's how it works. It Nahum doesn't like, Habakkuk doesn't like what he's seeing. He complains to God about it, so God answers him. Habakkuk doesn't like the answer, so he complains to God about the answer. And God answers him again. And then finally, Habakkuk kind of does a 180 in the last chapter. All right, so let's look at this really quickly. Habakkuk's first complaint. Look at chapter 1 of Habakkuk, starting in verse 1. The oracle of Habakkuk, the prophet Saul, that, the pro, that Habakkuk the prophet Saul starts in verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. This is Habakkuk's complaint. Look, you see what's going on here, right? You see what's going on in the nation of Judah? You see what our officials are doing? You see what our government's doing? Why don't you do something about this? This is a very modern-day complaint. So God responds. Look at verse 5. Look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you will not believe if, I told, if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. It's the Babylonians. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth 
from, the, from themselves. In other words, they're, they're, they make up their own rules. They do whatever they want to do. And look at verse, uh, well, let's just keep reading. Verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence on all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. And kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth to take it. It's talking about piling up earth against a wall so you can just go right up in and over the wall. To take it, verse 11, and then they sweep by like wind and go on. Guilty men who might, who own, whose own might is their God. Okay, so here's what God says. Habakkuk complains because his nation is corrupt and evil, and why don't you do something about it? And God says, I'm going to. I'm going to bring the Babylonians in and wipe them out, <laughs> which means you too. I'm going to wipe you all out with the Babylonians. It's not the kind of answer you want, Right? You know, it's like saying, God, please fix my child. And God says, okay, I'm going to make it worse for them. So here's these ruthless Babylonians now, which are, are mortal enemies of them. And Habakkuk complains about what's going in, on in his nation. And God says, I got it. We'll just bring the Babylonians in, wipe you all out. If you want a modern day kind of version of this, it would be like God telling us he's going to use North Korea to punish us for our sins. Oh, that got somebody's attention. It's the same deal. That's how it would have felt to them. Okay? Which causes Habakkuk to complain a second time. So, Habakkuk's second complaint. Look at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You hear almost the question in that? It's like, these are the people you're going to use? Verse 13, you who are, pure, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. Basically, Habakkuk is saying, why would you use someone even more wicked to come in and do your work? That just seems wrong. Now, tell me you haven't thought some things like this before. God, why are you doing this? Why don't you fix this? And God, why are you fixing this this way? This just seems wrong. So, the question is, how can you use a greater evil to punish a lesser evil? You see, herein lies the problem. Herein lies the problem. Habakkuk is having trouble seeing that the nation of Judah was just as guilty as the Babylonians. We're going to see this in just a minute. But he's having trouble seeing that. In other words, yeah, it's, what's going on in Judah is not good, but, but the Babylonians, really? 
mean, that's even worse. And so he has an issue with how God is going to solve this problem. In, in Habakkuk 2, verse 1. Here's what happens. Listen, I will take, this is Habakkuk talking, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what, we will say, what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So it's like Habakkuk saying, you know what? I'm just going to sit up here in the watchtower and I'm just going to fold my arms and see what you do. That's basically what he's saying. This is his second complaint. How can you, how can you, first complaint, how can you let this go on? Second complaint is, how can you settle this with people who are so wicked and vile? So God responds a second time. Habakkuk chapter 2 of verse 2. Habakkuk basically tells, God tells Habakkuk the Babylonians will get their reward. He basically says the Babylonians are going to get what's coming to them. Though it won't happen as quickly as you want it to or maybe the way you want it to. Look at verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Basically God's saying, you know, I know the Babylonians are wicked. And they're going to get what's coming to them also. But it's just not going to happen as quickly as you want it to. You have to wait for it. Now, when we, you and I pray, we want it to happen now. We don't want to wait for it. We just don't. If someone hurts us and wrongs us, if someone's been unethical, we want them to pay then and there. But it just doesn't work that way. The truth of the matter is, the people I want to see God mete out justice to, even if he does it, he'll do it when he wants to, how he wants to, in a way he wants to, and I may not even know it or see it. But I don't know of anywhere in Scripture that God is beholding unto me to do it the way I think he should do it and make sure that I get, give him his approval for it. You know? And this is kind of what he's telling Habakkuk. Yes, they are wicked. Yeah, they are vile. They are going to get what's coming to them. But I'll handle that in my way and my time. And if it seems slow, you're just going to have to wait for it. But then God says this to Habakkuk, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, talking about Babylon. But the righteous shall live by faith. You know, when I used, for a long time I didn't know this came from the Old Testament. I thought that was a New Testament verse. Because it's used in the New Testament. You can find it used in Paul by Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 17. Romans chapter 1 verse 17, Paul talks about the righteous living by faith. But if you put it in this context, it means the faith of bearing underneath bad news and knowing God's going to take care of it eventually. It's the faith that says, I may never see my enemies get what's coming to them. I'm just going to have faith that God's going to handle it. That is the faith it's talking about. And so God tells Habakkuk that you're going to have to trust me on this one. I will settle the score. I will even the scales. It'll come when I want it to. You may not see it, certainly not as quickly as you want it to. You're just going to have to trust and live by faith that it's going to happen. So when, when 
the unjust is happening, I got one of two choices. I can fuss because it looks like somebody's getting away with something, or I can have faith that God's going to handle it when and how he wants to. I usually do the former, to be honest with you, but doing the latter is much better. It's much easier. Uh, And then God goes into these decrees of five woes. Woe to the nation that, or woe to him that. So, and you see it like in verse six. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. He's talking about Babylon. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Woe to him, verse 15, who makes his neighbors drink or pours out your wrath and makes them drunk. Verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to silent stone arise. These are the things that that God is saying woe to. Woe to him that does these things. Here's the deal, though. This was not only true of Babylon, it was true of Judah. It's true of both of them. It's that old trying to remove a speck from your brother's eye when you have a board in yours. They were both just as guilty of these things. But, but God is trying to, to assure Habakkuk that he's got this. He's going to take care of this. And then finally, the last chapter, chapter 3, Habakkuk succumbs. He basically turns from complaining and he turns to praising. Look at... Uh, he starts off by praising the person of God in like chap- verse 2 of chapter 3. And then about 4, he starts praising the power of God. And then in about verse 13, he starts praising the plan of God. This is all a prayer of praise that he offers up to God. And then Habakkuk finally finds peace and resolution with these words. Look at verse 16. I hear... And my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. In other words, I don't like what I'm hearing. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He doesn't like what he's hearing about the Babylonians. That they're going to come in and wipe them out and get away with it. He doesn't like that. Yet, it says... I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. And then look at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, though fruit be on the, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce, of the produce of the olives fail and the fields, fail to, fields yield no fruit. Food. Man, I'm having trouble this evening. The flock be cut off from the fold. There be no herds in the stalls. Even though everything's going wrong, even though the checkbook is empty, even though the cars broke down, even though my air conditioner went out, even though I'm on the cut to lose my job, even though all of these things happen, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like deers. He makes me tread on my high places. In other words, Though all of these bad things are going on, I will still choose to trust him. That he knows what he's doing. Note the importance of the progression. Here's the deal. Habakkuk begins the book in frustration. And he ends the book in faith. 
And I think that's an important progression. I think too many of us want to just get people to faith. Just get people to praise. I've told you this before. If you look in the book of Psalms, in the beginning of the book of Psalms, there are a lot of complaining psalms and very little praise psalms. But when you get to the end of the book of Psalms, there's a lot of praise psalms and very little complaining psalms. I think that's a progress, a progression. I think that's a continuum. And so often what happens is we try to get people to jump over the whole stack and get straight to the praise and straight to the faith. And they've got to work through this process. That's why I like the book of Habakkuk. I like the fact that God takes questions and complaints. He may not answer them the way we want him to. And in the end, he kind of trumps us and puts us in our place. But he doesn't seem to be bothered by it. I like a God that I can ask questions and vent a little bit. I have to realize he's probably going to put me in my place. But I like that. And, and this is what happens in Habakkuk. He starts off hot and bothered about what's going on and why God's not doing something about it. Then he's hot and bothered because of the way God is going to deal with it. And finally he has to go, you know what? I'm just going to have to trust that you know what you're doing. And even if it looks bad in front of me, I'm going to have to trust that you're going to take care of it. Because what other option do I have? I mean, really, what other option do you have besides those two? And which option is going to serve you best and which option is going to get you further in the ditch? Which brings us to these takeaways. One. Man, I'm quick on the trigger. Let's try this again. One. In this world, there will be times when it appears that evildoers are getting away with things. This is because the world, not God, is corrupt. When evildoers are getting away with things, it's not because God is corrupt. It's because the world is corrupt. I remember being a hospice chaplain in Fort Worth, and I would sit with patients who had lived a good life, and they'd worked hard and provided for their families and been above board and been in church, et cetera, et cetera. And they retire and get cancer, and they have six months less to live. And outside, there are young kids running drugs and actually shooting people and they're living the high life. That's, because, that's not because God's corrupt. It's because the world's corrupt. Which leads us to this one. If God uses evil and evildoers to accomplish his perfect plan, it's a sign of his sovereignty over them, not his approval of them. God is so sovereign, he can use things that he doesn't even like and doesn't even wish that was happening to accomplish something bigger and better. That's a sign of his sovereignty, not his approval of those things. Does it make sense? It's not pleasant, but does it make sense? Finally, this one. My faith is to be in God's character, not my circumstances. If my faith is in my circumstances, when my circumstances are good, God is good. When my circumstances are bad, God is bad. But scripture tells me that God doesn't change. So just because my circumstances change, I can't believe that God has changed. So he's either good all the time or he's questionable all the time. You get to choose what you believe. That's the problem. 
We think God is as flexible and sometimes as wishy-washy as our circumstances. He's not. You take the book of Nahum, you take the book of Habakkuk, and plug in things like 9-11. Plug in things like school shootings. Plug in some of those things into these books, and you will wrestle the same way Habakkuk wrestled. You'll have some of the same questions he has. And if you follow it through long enough, you'll come to the same conclusions he came to. Because either God is sovereign or you're responsible. And I don't know about you, but I'm the guy that gets myself in most of my messes. So being responsible to get out of them doesn't seem very wise. I got myself there. So you have to decide... Is God good all the time? Is he for me? Is he trying to grow me? Can he be trusted? If he can, then it doesn't make any difference what else is going on around you. It doesn't make any difference. It's easier said than done. I, I give you that. Okay, so that's a whirlwind tour through Nahum and Habakkuk. What do you think about a backup? Questions? These are hard books because they force us to ask hard questions and make hard decisions. But you can't say that God is sovereign and in control and loving and caring and then when things go south, act like he isn't. He's the same way. I'm sure that When my children were in trouble, they thought I was very mean. And when I was giving them things they wanted, they thought I was very good. Truth of the matter is I was the same guy. Hadn't changed. But this is what we do with God. And if you can trust that God is good when things aren't, you'll be better off. Any questions? How do these books sit with you? I mean, you may be more spiritual than I am, and you may just be able to read them and go, oh, okay. I think about more about what it is today. It's like we're reading mm-hmm. about today. Yes, yes. These books are very relevant for today. They really are. You can hold these up to your TV screen during and watch CNN and hold these up. It's the same deal. Anything else? I'm going to tell you, I'll be glad when we're through the Minor Prophets because it's just bumming me out. You know, it's just really depressing to go through the Minor Prophets because you don't get much of a glimmer of hope It's because you know what's coming. But it's still something we need to hear. Yes, ma'am. Well, I I think Habakkuk had faith until God God told him how he was going to do things and he didn't like it. It was hard for Habakkuk to swallow God's answers because it seemed so antithetical to who he thought God should be.
Well, but it's like me praying to God to have, God, teach me to be more dependent upon you, but don't make my car break down. You know? God, teach me how to trust you with my finances, but make sure I have plenty enough that I don't have to worry about anything. You know, we, we say we want certain things, but then when God says, you know what? I will fix the problem in the nation of Judah. Uh, I will do that for you. I'm going to bring in your worst enemy to wipe you out. Then we take a deep breath and we back up. But it's still the same God. This is the same God that brought them into promised land. This is the same God that took them out of Egypt. This is the same God. So if he was dependable then, and it's true that God doesn't change, then even when it's so dark and hard, it's the same God. He's got to be just as dependable. So that's what I want you to plug into whatever your circumstance is. It's the same God. He's not changed. We change rapidly all the time. But he doesn't. All right, I've probably depressed you enough for the evening, so let's pray and go home. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for these two books. The, the Minor Prophets are hard, Father. They're hard messages. They're, they hold a mirror up to things we don't want to see, not just about your people in general, but about us specifically. And uh, as much as we'd love to write this off as, as stupid old Israel and stupid old Judah, and why couldn't they learn... At, we are the same way. Just like Judah couldn't see that their sin was just as bad as Babylon's, we sometimes have trouble seeing our sin is just as bad as Judah's. We're all the same. We're all prodigals, rebels at heart. And how you tolerate us is beyond me, but I'm grateful that you do. But Father, teach us to live in such a way that we learn easier rather than harder. Where we take more steps of faith than we do frustration. Where we trust you. Father, we learn to trust earthly parents for the most part without question. And yet we question you who created everything. So, somewhere where we need it this week, where, where stuff is hard, where we're fretting, where we're worrying, where we're anxious, remind us that you're the same God that you haven't changed. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.